When looking back at her history, it was W.E.B. Dubois who called Harriet Tubman a dreamer of dreams. He meant it in the most literal sense of the word. The injury from her childhood had left Harriet with visceral dreams, dreams she believed to be prophetic. She had been raised in the Christianity of the masters, but had found her own version of God. Not the one who told her to be meek and quiet, but the one who told her to stand. She knew God. She knew he was telling her to free others from bondage like Moses before her. From whatever proof she was unable to offer to skeptics in this realm, there were enough people who knew her who remarked that she was practically a mystic. Her intuition, friends noted, was extremely high. It accounted for the fact that she never got caught and never lost a passenger on the Underground Railroad. John Brown had much the same background. He had believed his whole life he was divinely protected by God, and he was on earth to end slavery. But in the end, Brown would fall slightly short of his dream of rebellion, led by enslaved persons and former enslaved persons against their former masters. Harriet remembered the vision she had of this man, the wild, bearded man falling in her dreams. The face was Brown's, and she no doubt wondered if she had just predicted the fall of Brown that was lingering just beyond the horizon sooner than Brown even likely realized. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Harriet Tubman, Episode 3. God's favorite in three, two, one. If Harriet learned one thing from her relationship with John Brown, it was to treat aggression with aggression. Brown lived with an eye for an eye philosophy when it came to facing off with slave owners. He judged himself ordained to serve out Old Testament style justice. Brown, whose appearance was wild and unkempt, laughed at reports that he was insane. He owned it, even. I may be very insane, he acquiesced as he sat in a prison cell awaiting his inevitable fate. There is some criticism about Brown, not necessarily regarding his fervent views or bravado. Despite being a fighter for freedom, author Catherine Clinton noted that he carried a bit of biblical patriarchy with him. Brown seemed to keep women out of his works and expect them to be subservient, typical of the time period, It did seem to get thrown out the window, though, when it came to Harriet Tubman specifically. There was something about Harriet that Brown recognized as greatness, an equal. When he met her in April of 1858, Brown was enthralled and admitted later he had full confidence in Tubman, even dubbing her the general. In his autobiography of Brown, W.E.B. Dubois noted that Brown was always fully confident in Harriet's abilities, believing full-heartedly that she was picked by God to lead, and that she could, under his tutelage, become a warrior. Harriet had always been proactive to protect herself and her passengers. Brown spoke earnestly with her and explained that slavery was an act of war, and it was up to those who fought against tyranny to be ready to spill blood. It wasn't just Brown who was radicalizing his fellow abolitionists. There were ongoing events that were causing a disgust with the South and fugitive slave laws. In 1854, the case of Anthony Burns, who had escaped from Virginia to Boston, made tempers rise. Burns accidentally revealed his location in a letter to his brother. 
A headhunter was dispatched immediately to claim Brown under the Fugitive Slave Act. Members of the Boston Vigilance Committee, a group of abolitionists committed to fighting back, tried to free Burns. The resulting fray led to the death of a guard. People in Boston were furious. In the meantime, Burns' attorney tried to say that the Fugitive Slave Act was a violation of the Fourth and Fifth Amendment. The bloody battle to free Burns and ensuing court battle amounted to naught, and he was eventually sent back to Virginia, eventually being sold to North Carolina. People watched him taken away, and they became furious. It was a Baptist freeman named Leonard Grimes who eventually managed to secure the freedom of Burns sometime later. It cost him $1,300. The donations came in from people who had been disgusted by the way that the man had been recaptured and that the Fugitive Slave Act had been enforced at all. As incidents like this occurred, Brown hoped to mobilize his fellow abolitionist. In Tubman, he found a visionary, and in Brown, Tubman saw the prophetic man from her dream. The dream in which she said she saw a serpent raise its head among the rocks, and as it did so, it became the head of an old man with a long white beard, gazing at her, wishful-like. Brown had pushed for abolitionists to join him in arms, but many drew the line at inciting violence. Brown, already notorious for his raids in Kansas, where he and his men hacked pro-slavery men to death in front of their families, was somewhat controversial, to say the least. His approach was not palatable, but it had been thus far successful. Harriet, who had been on the receiving end of violence at the hand of her very first mistress and others, was inspired by someone who told her that she had every right to fight for her life. She would rally support for Brown whenever and wherever she could. She promised him. And she promised she would spread his name on the Underground Railroad wherever she went. The association with Brown had some worried for Harriet's safety. Her beloved friend Thomas Garrett had concerns about Harriet affiliating with him, and it gave him pause for concern. But it seemed not to affect Harriet, who continued her work on the Underground Railroad, occasionally appearing on Garrett's doorstep, as always, to ask for help. And, of course, Garrett would give it willingly. For all of his worries about Harriet, she would continue to come and go successfully. Once, when she had disappeared at some point in 1857, he became worried. Harriet, after all, had an enormous bounty on her head. In concern, Garrett wrote to a mutual friend of Harriet's, William Still. Still was the main conductor on the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia. I've been very anxious for some time past to hear what has happened to Harriet Tubman. Last I heard, she was in the state of New York on her way to Canada with some friends last fall. Has thee seen or heard anything from her lately? I imagine Garrett realized he should have kept his faith in her when Still wrote back that Harriet was fine and was back in Philadelphia ready to restore her route on the Underground Railroad. Harriet always showed back up. Oh, ye of little faith. And the money to support her came from as far away as Europe. It was her relationship with New York politician William Seward that would provide Harriet a home base, a new one. In his career, Seward would serve as state senator, governor of New York, U.S. senator, secretary of state, and he would eventually run for president. Not successfully. 
His father had been a slave owner in the state of Florida, and Seward would spend the rest of his career quietly undermining the practice, but never coming out fully as an abolitionist. Oh, he was one, but it's likely he was unwilling to give up the power he would likely lose by admitting it. It is some testament to his character that he did provide shelter to those who fled slavery, and he also arranged to give Harriet Tubman a home. It was illegal, but Seward sold Harriet her first piece of land and home base in Auburn, New York. Seven acres and a house on South Street. It was a gesture of respect. The transaction was illegal, but Seward filed it anyways. Tubman was becoming exceedingly well-connected, and she was fast becoming a person of significant influence. And that terrified a lot of people. John Brown and Harriet would meet once more at her New York home in 1858, where they spoke, and he affectionately referred to her once more as his general. She had been serving as a fierce recruit for him, raising money for the insurrection he was slowly raising, and that he planned to execute at Harriet's suggestion on July 4th, 1859. Harriet had been very visible, speaking to crowds to raise money for the Underground Railroad and for Brown despite it making others nervous. Other abolitionists had distanced themselves from Brown, including Frederick Douglass, who thought it was far too dangerous a risk to lead a raid, even trying to dissuade him from leading his men into a trap. A trap was inevitable, Douglass said, but Brown had expected to raise an army of enslaved men to attack with him. He didn't seem to have a strong sense of military expertise, and he was very much flying by the seat of his pants, and this would prove to be his undoing in some senses. Only his most fervent supporters would stay by his side, not knowing the odds of the battle he was planning on leading them into. He had several supporters in Canada who were ready to join, but communication was so spotty. They weren't ready to go yet. I think I have no doubt that Harriet would be by his side if she had been able to, but the communication was so bad that Harriet never heard from John that he was planning on postponing the raid. Circumstances would then lead Harriet to falling extremely ill in that October, that bloody October. October 16, 1859. The Federal Armory in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia. John Brown was surrounded not by the hundreds he likely envisioned. Rather, he was surrounded by 16 white men and five black men. They cut telegraph lines in the area in the early morning hours and waited Brown had anticipated that his actions would cause many enslaved persons to rise up and fight with him, but the call went unheeded. They seized the armory that night and became trapped, fighting for the armory for two days. Brown had not mastered the art of planning the way Tubman had, and it was certain he wished he could have relied upon her skills in that moment. On October 18th, combined state and federal troops took control, with the federal troops being led by the then-Colonel Robert E. Lee and Lieutenant Jeb Stewart. Seventeen men died, and Brown was eventually captured and quickly tried for treason. If Brown's men weren't killed fighting, they were captured and hanged. Harriet no doubt hurt at the way her prophetic dream of Brown had come to life. In her dreams, she would see him violently fall, and she mourned this vision, no doubt equating his brutal death of hanging to the vision of him falling. Brown fell. 
It's worth noting that many a Southern politician warned of making Brown a martyr, something Brown himself noted. It is a great comfort that I am permitted to die for a cause, he wrote. The friendship changed Harriet, who decided that she was going to fight the way John Brown always did. It was in 1860 when a coachman named Charles Nell was captured in Troy, New York, on suspicion of being a runaway from Virginia. In a heartbreaking moment, it would soon be revealed that the man who came to capture Nell was his own brother, a freed man who was simply following orders. A crowd gathered to protest outside the commissioner's office, and Nell attempted to jump out of a window to safety in the crowd, but he was hauled back inside. No one was paying attention to the hunched-over elderly lady wrapped in a shawl, carrying a basket. She couldn't have been more than five feet tall. She had walked by everyone, the guards slowly shuffling. She had not been a threat. That is until the tiny woman stood up and grabbed Nal by the shoulders, rapidly leading him by the guards who fell, trying to capture her. Harriet pushed Nal forward. Run, she screamed, pushing him into the arms of the crowd below as they fought back against the guards. They dragged Nell away, abolitionists and freedmen, putting themselves between Nell and the guards. Unable to reach Nell, the guards found another way. They brutally beat Tubman with their clubs in the head till she fell over, her body going limp. Her supporters went silent. They had managed to keep Nell away from the guards for a while, but a few hours later he was recaptured. It took a while before Harriet began moving again. There was a sigh of relief as she lifted herself to her feet, shuffling slowly. She was bleeding from her head. Her eyes were swollen and bruised. It looked like the battle was lost. Now would be taken back. So they thought. Harriet didn't try to speak. Instead, she held her hand up, capturing the tension of the protesters. She said nothing, but pointed in the direction of the office where now was being held. There was a war cry from the crowd that gathered, and they fought on pushing into the office, overpowering the guards. The sheriff struck one of the men in the head with a hatchet. It incapacitated him, but he fell in such a manner that it prevented them from closing the door and blocking the route inside. A local newspaper would note the way that people from all walks of life, including, quote, the most respectable citizens, including lawyers, physicians, and politicians, were also joining in the fray white and black fighting together to rescue Charles Now from the fate that Anthony Burns had suffered, and in the middle of it stood a bloodied Harriet Tubman with bullets flying past her, not flinching once, able to move an entire crowd with just the gesture of her hand. She was a warrior. An eye for an eye. I can't help but think that if John Brown was watching Harriet unite a group of people from the other side to save a runaway, he would have smiled at Harriet Tubman. Not just Harriet Moses. Harriet, the general 
God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast where we look at all the people who were God's favorites or at least thought they were. Spoiler, they usually aren't. Sources for today, of course, include Catherine Clinton, Harriet Tubman, The Road to Freedom, John Brown by W.E.B. Dubois, Britannica.com, and their article on the Harper's Ferry Raid. Great timeline, very helpful. And the Seward House Museum website. Thanks to everyone who donates to our Patreon to make it able for us to buy books, resources, get behind paywalls, and to pay for music and streaming expenses that, you know, those things that you don't normally associate with a podcast. You can join us over on TikTok for the conversation at Melissa Fairlady. Uh, we're working on saving Charles Lightoller, the second officer of Titanic's boat. There's a lot of details on my profile about that whole project. I think you'll really enjoy it. There is also an episode of the podcast about that, so join us for that if you're interested. And I hope you'll join us next time as Harriet Tubman continues to be the biggest badass ever. I appreciate all of you who follow this podcast, my TikTok, and you can also join the conversation on Facebook over at God's Favorites, a history podcast. The show is written and produced by me, Melissa, and as always, what else can I say but see you next time, friends.